Hello everyone and welcome to this edition of After the Final Whistle. I am your host Brad Clear and in this episode today we're going to take a look at a few things that are going on in the wrestling world. We're going to look at the Seth Rollins heel turn and his alignment with the AOP. We're going to talk about two cousins Angel Garza and Humberto Carrillo and we'll touch a bit on AEW at the end of the episode. Coming off of TLC last night for WWE. Let's start off this show today talking about Humberto Carrillo. This is something that I've been wanting to talk about on this podcast for some time because there is a clear effort being made for Humberto Carrillo to emerge and become a significant star on Monday Night Raw within the WWE. There was the report upon the draft that they had the idea of Humberto being their next big Spanish star. And the actions since then have indicated that that report was accurate. And it's interesting to follow this um, big effort being made uh, towards making Humberto a big-time star because there has been significant effort being made. And it really hasn't done anything in the sense of getting people into Humberto outside of getting excited when his matches reach their finish and their big points of the match. Um, the thing with Humberto is this. The idea of Humberto makes sense, right? He's young. He's Spanish. He is very good-looking. He's a guy that you look at and you say, all right, great. This guy is literally what you'd want a babyface to look and feel like. He's high-flying. He's young. He's youthful. He's got a lot of energy. But... There are flaws within Humberto that, to me, I don't think that there's really the upside and ceiling that is um, thought to be there for Humberto, obviously, by those in power and making decisions. I don't think that that upside is there. Because I think you look at Humberto and you look at the rest of the roster, if we look at really the, the, the people who are sort of in the similar area as Humberto on the card, the guys who are in that mid-card, upper mid-card um, area, younger guys or newer guys to the main roster, trying to break to that next level, Humberto, to me, is a tier below a lot of those guys as far as his in-ring ability. Humberto is very good, don't get me wrong, but Ricochet, Andrade, Buddy Murphy, Alistair Black... Mustafa Ali, Shorty G, Chad Gable, even Cedric Alexander, who I'm not crazy about and I think is kind of is where he is at this point. The point there is I think all of those guys I just mentioned are a tier above Humberto in the ring. Those guys are all great and absolute beasts in the ring. Humberto, to me, is very good, but he is not at that level as those other guys. So... Even though he is good in the ring, it's not enough in today's wrestling climate to just be a good in-ring wrestler to become super popular unless you are ridiculously good in the ring as those other wrestlers are. Humberto himself is not anything that is going to wow you to a ridiculous or incredible level in the ring just based off of all these other incredible in-ring performers that there are in this mid-card area, in the main event level area. He just doesn't do it at an incredible level in the ring. He's very good, again, as I said, 
but he's a tier below a lot of these other guys who are in similar spots as him on the card. And then outside of him in the ring being very good, there's nothing to him. Right? He doesn't really... To me, I don't find him to be that charismatic. And he doesn't have any promo ability. And there's nothing to him. What is Humberto Correa? What is there that someone can latch onto and identify with and connect with as a fan? There's really nothing there. There's not much there. There's just the in-ring ability and he's there. And that's it. And... To me, yes, I recognize he's very good, but he clearly is not becoming any more popular, maybe slightly, but he is not becoming anything more than marginally more popular than he was at the beginning of all these efforts that were made. And it isn't enough to just put a guy out there and to have him have good matches and him to become this big-time star. It's not enough. Good wrestling in today's wrestling climate, fans are conditioned to incredible wrestling because the talent pool in wrestling right now is better than it has ever been in an in-ring standpoint. It's not enough to just be very good in the ring. And when he's at a tier below a lot of his contemporaries and peers and has nothing to him as far as a character sense or a promo ability sense or or a charisma sense, it just to me, I, I don't, I don't see this monster upside. You know, there's nothing to latch onto or for people to really invest in for Humberto Carrillo, except for when he's in a match and the match progresses towards the end of the match. They've had efforts being made towards putting him in backstage segments and promos with Rey Mysterio, in tag matches with Rey Mysterio. Uh, they had him come out for promo segments before a match with the Street Profits. You know, they're really putting a lot of effort into giving him the sort of, we'll call it the rub, from other guys who are popular or have become popular and are established as such. You know, last night at TLC, he had his second win over Andrade, which to me, you know, if we look at building a Spanish star for the future, I I don't understand how you could ever, ever go with anyone in that company besides Andrade. He's everything, everything that you could want. Now, this Humberto... This, this desire to make Humberto a big-time star, with the amount of effort and time that has been put in towards it, I don't envision it going away anytime soon. And look, maybe eventually the fans just really take a liking to Humberto because of how consistently he performs in the ring. Perhaps that's possible. But to me, the idea of Humberto is better than the reality. He's young, he's good-looking, he's Spanish, and you combine that with exciting in-ring action, and in theory, that gives you someone who can be a big-time star. But to me, when you look at this incredibly talented roster and the guys you have at your disposal, looking at Monday Night Raw, you know, guys like Ricochet, who has taken pins a lot in multiple weeks and was on main event last week, you know, Alistair Black and Buddy Murphy, who had a killer match last night at TLC. You look at SmackDown, Mustafa Ali and Shorty G. These are all guys, to me, who have more upside long-term than Humberto does and are better than Humberto, quite frankly, in the ring and as an overall package. Especially Ricochet, just looking at that babyface spot on Raw. Ricochet's a literal superhero who can do things that no human should be able to do and draws in a non-wrestling fan viewer. Humberto doesn't do that. So, I like Humberto, as far as I know he's a good wrestler, but as far as him being a big-time star, I don't see it. To me, I see Humberto long-term 
being a member of a really fun babyface tag team. As far as being a babyface singles star in that upper mid-card, low main event area, which is clearly where the desire is to get him towards, I don't see it. I just don't see it. Because there's nothing to him that allows a fan to latch onto him and care about him. Now, moving away from Humberto, let's go to Angel Garza in NXT, the new Cruiserweight Champion. Angel Garza and Humberto, cousins, but long-term potential-wise, I think that there is significantly more upside in Angel Garza than there is in Humberto. I first seeing Humberto, or Angel Garza, you know, I, I never watched either he or Humberto before they came to WWE. I didn't. Very quickly, after seeing Angel Garza wrestle for the first time and seeing his overall presentation, immediately I looked at this guy and I said, this guy's this guy's going to be a star. This is a major star in the making. He has that great in-ring ability, but unlike Umberto, he just exudes charisma. Ridiculously charismatic without even saying a word. And perfectly looks and has that arrogant, cocky, good-looking heel that is just an absolute piece of crap to his opponents and all the women love and can't get enough of, and he's so full of himself, he has that on lock. And that has obviously been recognized now to the point where he is the cruiserweight champion. He is someone who you look at right away, and you can identify, all right, this guy has a presence to him, he's fun to watch, People in the crowd, especially at Full Sail, love watching him. Gets the crowd going every single time he's out there, and he delivers in the ring. I think he's a similar quality wrestler to Humberto. You know, he's not. I don't think he's significantly better or worse. I think he's probably the same quality of wrestler. But when you add in that overall package, where he's a ready-made major heel who's full of himself and is cocky and is just ridiculously charismatic without even having to say a word. That's a star. Someone who, when he's on your screen, he captures your attention and he has an overall presence and presentation to him. Angel Garza has that, whereas Humberto doesn't. Now, of course, they're different in the sense that Garza is a ready-made 100% heel, whereas Humberto is a white meat babyface. But just looking at the two of them together, I think Angel Garza over the long term holds much more upside and to me is a star in the making and that has been recognized to an extent by him becoming their cruiserweight champion. To me, all this effort being made towards Humberto, you know, not in the babyface spot, but in a heel role, Angel Garza, I think, would actually have the ability to pay off on that major effort and investment being made towards making them a top star. Because I think Garza has the ability to get to that level that they want Humberto to get to, but as a heel, and I don't see it for Humberto. Now we move away from Garza and Humberto. Angel Garza, man, he is he's just going to be a star. A star, a star, a star. I can't say enough positive things. Let's move to Seth Rollins. Recently officially turned heel, aligning with the AOP. And there's a lot of takes out there as far as the reasoning behind why Seth Rollins had to 
you know, had lost his crowd support and had to get to the point where he had to turn heel. What was it that ultimately was the cause for crowds to completely turn on Seth Rollins and to leave him turning heel in the fashion that he did to really be the only option? And there's been lots of takes. You watch WWE backstage. You have CM Punk saying that Seth Rollins is a bad babyface. You have people all around on social media saying that, oh, Seth Rollins is just not a good babyface and he's such a better heel. And you have people saying that, oh, Seth Rollins was cowardly and weak against The Fiend and that's why people turned on him. Or, oh, Seth Rollins was annoying on Twitter and because of Twitter and tweeting stuff that people didn't like, that's why he lost his crowd support. All right, let's back up here. First off, the idea that Seth Rollins is not a good babyface is just flat out wrong. That, that's not the case. It, it's just completely wrong. Now, is there an argument to be made that Seth Rollins is a better heel? Sure, he probably is. But is Seth Rollins a bad babyface? No, absolutely not. And I think that people saying such is the case is an example of recency bias. We look at Seth Rollins and we look at him, you know, he turned babyface. They had the thing where uh, Triple H cost him the Universal Championship and the Fatal 4-Way and Kevin Owens won. And it was kind of slow because they had to wait around um, to build up towards WrestleMania season for those couple months in the fall. So without that real impetus to get back at Triple H, he was kind of just a babyface now and it didn't really click until that Triple H program and after that. So it kind of was a bit of an adjustment period when he initially turned babyface in 2016 but really to me since he had that um that program in the summer of 2017 where he uh, wanted to get ambrose to um wanted to get ambrose to partner with him um against the bar and wanted to get ambrose to be back to supporting him and righting his wrong as far as turning on him from that tag program in 2017 to the gauntlet match where he had that over an hour long performance in that gauntlet match in February 2018 that gauntlet match to me in February 2018 that really was the prime catalyst in my mind as far as what made Seth Rollins the ridiculously popular babyface from all different types of fans which led him to getting to that top guy spot, which is where he was and is. He had that gauntlet match in February 2018. He won the Intercontinental Championship at WrestleMania 34? 34 in 2018. And from that point forward, that period of time where he was a multi-time Intercontinental Champion and he feuded with Dolph Ziggler and Drew McIntyre, and then he had that short little feud with Elias... That period of time, Seth Rollins was the most popular babyface going anywhere. He had ridiculous crowd support. People were so into him. And every match, he delivered. And he had killer match after killer match after killer match. He was the best babyface going on the entire main roster. And it wasn't a question. He had the crowds in the palm of his hand, supporting him every single match he was out there. And he was delivering night in and night out to a ridiculous extent. He was the hottest thing going as far as babyfaces were concerned. And 
when you had a guy like that who really from early 2018 to winning the Intercontinental Championship at WrestleMania in 2018 and having that incredible, really it was that summer we had that just incredible run as the Intercontinental Champion. As we know, the um, feud with Dean Ambrose really got botched. But it was clear with the incredible crowd support he had and the performances he was putting in, he was the clear answer uh, to face Brock Lesnar for the Universal Championship at WrestleMania uh, 35 here in 2019. It, w- it was no question. And when he beat Brock Lesnar for that Universal Championship at WrestleMania, and he had that whole story of him bringing that title back, everyone in, everyone was into him. Everyone wanted to see him win it. Everyone was on Seth Rollins' side, and he was so ridiculously popular. And he had that program with Corbin for a couple months. Again, everyone was super into him, and he was super popular. And then they wanted to give Seth Rollins a marquee match at SummerSlam. I was there at Extreme Rules when Brock Lesnar cashed in on him. Very simple. You have Brock Lesnar cash in, and Seth Rollins can pin Brock Lesnar again. So Seth Rollins pinned Brock Lesnar twice. And... Even still at SummerSlam, just a couple months ago, everyone was super behind Seth Rollins, unified behind Seth Rollins, whether it was um, families and young kids, whether it was your hardcore internet fans, whether it was um, any fan of any kind, everyone was rooting for Seth Rollins and was behind him. Even had that fun little program with Braun Strowman. Uh, into September where they were the tag champs and then also faced each other for the Universal title. That was a fun program. People were behind Seth Rollins then also. I mean, they weren't not behind Braun Strowman, but people were still very much behind Seth Rollins, and he was very popular. And then came The Fiend. The hottest thing going in all of wrestling. Not even a question. And that is where... What killed babyface Seth Rollins comes into play. There really, it really did not matter who you put the fiend against at that point in time there um, in that September into October period. Whoever you put him against, and that's still the case to an extent now. I mean, they've done a good job now to an extent at making the fiend this kind of horror movie villain kind of thing. People are still ridiculously into him. I mean, We saw Bray Wyatt come out there as the Funhouse Bray Wyatt last night, and I mean, everyone in the crowd loved his presence, and he was the greatest thing going, as he is. But as was the case then, and still is to an extent now, whoever you put against The Fiend there in September into October was going to get booed. It did not matter who it was. They were going to get booed because The Fiend is and was the hottest thing going in the entire WWE, and in my mind, all of wrestling. And people saying that, oh, Seth Rollins acting scared and terrified of The Fiend and looking weak, and that's what killed him as a babyface. No, no, people will, no, that, that was not what killed him. What happened to me, in my mind, because even throughout this feud with The Fiend, it wasn't a case of people turning on Seth Rollins, It was a case of he was against The Fiend, and whoever was against The Fiend was going to be the one that was booed and not supported. It's not, that's not a Seth Rollins case. That's a literally anybody you put him against case. Nobody was getting cheered against The Fiend at that point in time. And thinking otherwise would would have been delusional. To me, what killed Seth Rollins 
was the Hell in a Cell debacle. That's what killed him. I still believe, sitting here right now, that if The Fiend had won the Universal Championship at Hell in a Cell instead of Crown Jewel, Seth Rollins would still be a babyface right now. And his crowd support would be lower than what it was at that peak up until he feuded with The Fiend, but it would not be to the point where he was universally booed by everyone, whether it be at Full Sail, whether it be at the UK, in the UK, or whether it be here domestically in the US. What that Hell in a Cell finish came across as was it came across as them doing a Super Cena-esque protection of Seth Rollins against the hottest thing going in the company, and the subject of everyone's anger and frustration over that um, finish and debacle where they called a DQ and a Hell in a Cell match, that doesn't happen. You don't do that. Seth Rollins was there to be the subject of everyone's anger and frustration. And that anger and frustration did not go away after that night where the crowds very vocally turned on that match and everything going on with it booed Seth Rollins to crap when they did the little bit after the match where the Fiend, you know, after the DQ happened, the Fiend choked him out, and they did the fake blood coming out, the crowd's chanting AEW, you had the fan in the crowd yelling, Seth Rollins isn't cool at Seth when he's coming up the ramp. He was the subject of everyone's anger and resentment, and that anger and resentment continued. And at Crown Jewel, the Fiend finally won, as he should have in the first place. But the damage was already done. And then after Crown Jewel, they did the thing where could he with uh, Survivor Series and with NXT and all that. The damage was already done. And to me, it was not a case of, oh, he looked cowardly and weak against The Fiend. And it was not a case of, you know, even though his Twitter did play a role in it, it was not a case of, you know, because quite frankly, you know, it a, it's a small minority of people who are going to be very vocal against the things that he would be saying on Twitter. It was not Twitter. It was not um, him being a bad babyface because he's not a bad babyface. And it was not him looking cowardly against The Fiend. It was that that Hell in a Cell debacle was so bad that it left such a bad taste in people's mouths that it came across as people thinking that he was getting the Super Cena treatment against the hottest thing going in the company. And even though The Fiend still won, that anger and resentment lingered, and it did not go away. The Twitter stuff, again, it wasn't the main factor, but it didn't do him any favors. And so now we're in a spot here where we have heel Seth Rollins. And is heel Seth Rollins better than babyface Seth Rollins? Probably. Even though he's good at both, he's probably better as a heel. I think that's something that most people would agree on. He's in a position now with the AOP as his bodyguards and or in a stable or whatever the alignment ends up being. He's the top guy on this show as a heel, but he also has the ability now to be the one that makes the top babyface Kevin Owens. And now obviously Kevin Owens' top babyface, the support is there. He's in that spot already, but that's going to be magnified even more so by the fact that he has to now go up against Seth Rollins and the AOP. So not only Seth Rollins, the top guy on the show in that top heel spot, but he's going to really solidify and make that true top babyface in Kevin Owens. So overall, we look at the situation. Seth Rollins is not a bad babyface. Is he a better heel? Probably. Is he a good babyface? Yes. Did him turning heel result from him being a bad babyface? No. I just think there was no way he could recover 
from that debacle that was Hell in a Cell and the perception and anger that it gave to the fans. Now, looking at where we are on Monday Night Raw, and this is kind of a transition point here, you can kind of see the WrestleMania path for Brock Lesnar and the WWE Championship. Because Kevin Owens has to be involved in that in some form because he is now the top babyface on Monday Night Raw. Seth Rollins is the top star on Monday Night Raw. Now, whether it's Kevin Owens versus Brock Lesnar or Seth Rollins versus Kevin Owens versus Brock Lesnar, I think one of those two options is going to end up being the WWE Championship match at WrestleMania. Kevin Owens is going to be in that match. He's the top babyface on this show. Now, for Seth Rollins, it's just a matter of is he also in that match or is there another big-time match for him to have at WrestleMania? You know, it's kind of a. I think it would have been nice if this Kevin Owens Seth Rollins feud could have had the WWE Championship or some world title involved with it. I think it's kind of missing that. I think heel Seth Rollins as the world champion with Kevin Owens chasing him now. You could do that all the way until WrestleMania. I think that would have been great. Um, but moving forward towards WrestleMania and kind of springboarding this conversation, you can see that path now towards WrestleMania for the top. You can really see a path towards WrestleMania for the top four matches and the four world title matches um, on Raw and SmackDown. As I just mentioned with Raw, you can see that path where Kevin Owens versus Brock Lesnar or Kevin Owens versus Seth Rollins versus Brock Lesnar is the match. On SmackDown, and to me, this really is the clearest lock for the show at this point, is The Fiend versus Roman Reigns for the Universal Championship. You look at the show, they're extending the Daniel Bryan Fiend stuff until Royal Rumble. They're going to do a Saudi Arabia show at the end of February. You know, you, you have, you know, someone like Braun who can be a, an opponent for that show. You have Elimination Chamber before WrestleMania, which if you're going to have the Fiend have a match, that's not necessarily an individual feud. That's just a top six guys on the show thing. The Fiend versus Roman Reigns is the most obvious match for this year's WrestleMania. And it's not a question. I would be stunned if that match does not happen. And for the men's Royal Rumble, quite frankly, I think Roman Reigns is very much the obvious winner of that match. Just based off of the fact that if you have a SmackDown winner in Roman Reigns, you can have a Raw winner for the women's Royal Rumble match. Which springboards into the Raw women's title match, which to me there's really only two options here. If Ronda Rousey is coming back, then Becky Lynch versus Ronda Rousey one-on-one for the Raw Women's Championship has to be the match. And Ronda Rousey coming back as a surprise to win the Royal Rumble would be the way to get you there. Now, if Ronda Rousey is not coming back, it is tailor-made for Becky Lynch and Shayna Baszler to have a one-on-one match at WrestleMania based off of One, there was a report, you know, I believe it was like six or eight months ago that um, Becky Lynch had an opponent lined up for WrestleMania, but it wasn't Ronda Rousey and it wasn't Stephanie McMahon and it wasn't Charlotte Flair. And if you really pieced it together, it came out to be that it was probably Shayna Baszler. And secondly, we just had the Survivor Series program where they had feud going and Shayna uh, choked out Bailey, did not decisively beat Becky Lynch. So there is a ready-made program there. So to me, the winner of the Women's Royal Rumble match and the Raw Women's title match, to me, I think ends up being 
if Ronda Rousey comes back, Becky Lynch and Ronda Rousey. If she doesn't, Becky Lynch and Shayna Baszler. So there's two pretty clear paths for the world title matches on Raw. On SmackDown, I think it's a lock that it's The Fiend and Roman Reigns. And then your women's title match, you can see a path where, even though it's less clear than those other three, where it's either Bailey and Sasha against each other, or it's something involving those two and Lacey Evans, who now in this babyface role is going to absolutely kill it in that role as a babyface. You know, because I think a lot of people were saying, oh, Lacey isn't that good. She's inexperienced. She's green and this and that. No, what happened was she was forced down people's throats too quickly and there wasn't anything left to do after she had a three-month program with Becky Lynch and lost multiple times. I saw Lacey Evans wrestle at TakeOver Philadelphia in a TV taping match before the show. She wrestled Nikki Cross. This is where Lacey was kind of getting into that lady persona, not quite there yet. I mean, she was, but it was in the early stages. You could tell right away. Great size, great look, great athleticism. So much raw potential was there. You put it all together now with her backstory of being a mother, uh, being a former U.S. Marine, and there's there's so much there for her to be a big-time babyface. And she's incredibly skilled both in the ring and as far as having a presence and promo ability as well. She's one of the top five or six women on the main roster in the entire company right now. And she's going to be an absolute star in this top babyface role with time. So that is what I look at as far as the Humberto Carrillo and Angel Garza situations, the Seth Rollins heel turn, and the path towards WrestleMania for those top four world title matches. To end this podcast, let's touch on AEW real quick, because I have not talked about AEW uh, to a great extent on this podcast before. And now that we've had AEW Dynamite going now for two months, I, I really like AEW. I really do. However, with that being said... I think there are some flaws, which is going to come inherently to any wrestling product or program. I, I think one flaw they had, and I get why it happened, you know, I, I think that um, kind of cutting off um, Cody's momentum as the top babyface in the sense of never being able to challenge for the world title again, you know, I get why he did it. You know, I understand, you know, he has his stance on it. Um, as far as you know, him being management and him being the world title, not tarnishing his legacy, and the fact that that role played with his father being in a management role when he was in such a role that Cody is in now, you know, 20, 30 years ago, or 30 years ago. I, I get why it happened. I get why Cody wanted to do that. But there may come a point in time where they need Cody to be the world champion. And now it kind of takes everything that Cody does and it makes it to an extent less important because there's a ceiling built into whatever he does. You know, he's still in the um, the weekly top rankings that they do as far as record is concerned and come out with every Friday. But again, it doesn't necessarily matter that much because again, he can only progress to a certain level. Um, and speaking of Cody too, I think another thing is the feud that he and MJF are having. I think it's lost... You know, even though Cody had his big promo two weeks ago and MJF had his big promo last week, I think to an extent it uh, is kind of losing some of its steam or has lost some of its steam because they they have to wait until that February pay-per-view and kind of have to stretch it out. And um, as a result, had to implement that Butcher and the Blade kind of mini feud going on um, just to give it a buffer to just kill a little bit of time. 
going into 2020 because that pay-per-view isn't until uh, February. So once 2020 comes, you know, because MJF said he's going to announce the stipulations on the uh, New Year's Day Dynamite in Jacksonville. But I think once 2020 comes, it'll pick up again. But for now, I think it's just lost a lot of the uh, steam that it would have had and it being a really hot feud because, again, they kind of have to elongate it and stretch it out because you can't have that match until February. And you got to get there till February with lots of TV weeks to kill. So that's where you say, hey, MJF paid off the Butcher and the Blade, and you have to have Cody and QT Marshall versus the Butcher and the Blade, and now Darby Allen and Cody versus the Butcher and the Blade. Um, that Butcher and Blade debut was really bad, but they had a decent match last week, so it, it kind of justifies being put in that role for the time being. I, I'm not crazy about them, but I, I think they had a decent match and did good to kind of reverse the fortunes of that pretty eh debut that they had. Um, another thing that they have, I think this the, the spooky, dark kind of stuff, they have a bit too much of that going on between the, the Nightmare Collective with Brandy and Awesome Kong and then the Dark Order and now the Butcher and the Blade. The, the Brandy, the, the stuff with the Nightmare Collective, I think it's just bad. I think it's just bad. Uh, I want to give it the benefit of the doubt, but so far it's just not been good. Uh, the Dark Order stuff I'm intrigued by because there's been a lot of effort and time being uh, made on both TV and on social towards the Join the Dark Order stuff. So to me, you know, I would think that there has to be a pretty sizable payoff to it as far as recruiting someone who is losing a lot and someone who would really solidify, hey, these guys can recruit someone of major significance and they are a force to be taken seriously. Now, they had the little tease on BTE and stuff where Michael Nakazawa and Brandon Cutler thought about taking the little tab to join the Dark Order. But, but frankly, those are again, those are lower card guys who are just bodies for the group. I have thought for now, I think about two weeks, I think my thought has been, I think Hangman Page, now distancing himself from the elite, and I think Hangman Page is going to be the sort of marquee addition to join the Dark Order here. Because without that marquee addition, it's a lot of time and effort to be put in uh, towards something like this. But, you know, Heyman Page, he's lost matches. Now he's got a bit of an aggressive streak going. Uh, with him tagging with Kenny last week and tagging again this coming Wednesday against the Lucha Brothers, you know, you can kind of see that they're kind of planting those seeds a little bit for Kenny and the Hangman Page, or Hangman Page to have kind of a little feud going on. To me, he's no longer in the Elite. He's frustrated over um, how he was treated by the Elite and frustrated over losing in the past. I think they need to have a big addition to the Dark Order to justify all the time and effort put into it and the promoting of it. And it makes sense within the story for Hangman Page to be that marquee edition. I don't know what the timeline on that is, but I think that that is what ends up being the end result is Hangman Page joins the Dark Order. Um, as a whole, though, you look at AEW, it's still a very good show. The matches are great. The roster, even though smaller, has a lot of talent in different areas. The women's division, I think, just needs more structure to it. There's not really any stories going on. Uh, I guess besides the Nightmare Collective trying to recruit Chris Statlander, uh, Riho has been in Japan for a couple weeks, so she hasn't been on the show. You know, Hikaru Shida was the number one contender, but then she lost to Chris Statlander. Now Chris Statlander and Britt Baker are having a number one contenders match. The women's division is just kind of all over the place. 
you know, they had the uh, full gear pay-per-view. The uh, Emi Sakura Riho match was kind of thrown together really quickly. There just hasn't been a lot of story and cohesion going on with the women's division, but there's a ton of talent there. Um, but as a whole, I think the show is great. There, there are those flaws there mentioned with, um, you know, the, the too much dark, uh, dark group faction kind of thing going on. You know, the shows, I think, at first was too much match, 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 and now there's promos and pre-taped segments and backstage segments and packages. The show is great. It's a great show, and it's really exciting to watch every single week. But those are just the flaws that you notice week to week um, with the show. I, I think one thing is clear, though. You know, Moxley, John Moxley is the biggest star on the show, and it's pretty clear to see. Chris Jericho is fantastic as Le Champion, and I think the show is very good, but I think it could be even better if, you know, you cut down on some of the dark, creepy kind of stuff and really add some more cohesion to that women's division because the talent is there for the division to be very good. Um, but it just has not really been maximized to the extent that it could. But as a whole, AEW has been great. NXT has been great on Wednesday nights. Wednesday nights are a great night of the week. And with that, that will be the end of the episode today here after the final whistle, looking at Humberto, Angel Garza, Seth Rollins, Paths Toward WrestleMania, and All Elite Wrestling. Again, I am your host, Brad Clear. Be sure to check back here on podcast.com and Apple Podcasts for more episodes of After the Final Whistle. Shout out to you, the listener. Shout out to WWE, NXT, and AEW. And as always, goodbye and good night.